Well, hello and welcome to Finding Our Way, our Southridge Church member podcast designed to give people the inside scoop on life in our church. Here's our host and lead pastor, Jeff Lockyer. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Finding Our Way. Uh, I got to say that this week is pretty exciting for me because I get to sit down with a longtime friend, but a first-time guest, uh, a former pastor and now professor uh, in Western Canada and also a very popular author named Mark Buchanan. Mark, thanks for being here, brother. Jeff, I'm so glad to join you. Uh, I want you just quickly to kind of update people on everything about yourself, but I guess <laughs> first things first, uh, where are you? right now as you talk to us, because I know you live in multiple worlds. Yeah. So right now I'm on a little island not far from Vancouver called Keats and do some ministry here. And I'm, I'm back and forth between this place and usually Cochrane, Alberta. Between your seminary role and uh, you've got a bit of a kind of side hustle ministry with your wife. Uh, yeah. Do you want to just give us a bit of background, even just personally on your, your family background and things like that, and then talk about these two ministry dynamics? Absolutely. Love to. Yeah, I, uh, I'm now into my 60s, but I became a, a follower of Christ when I was early 20s in a kind of a radical way. It was actually reading the Bible, and I was startled and alarmed and intrigued and disrupted by story of Jesus. And so that really led in, uh, to, to this lifelong quest and journey of knowing who he is and following him and serving him. But uh, yeah, it took me for many years into pastoral work. And that's where you and I first met when I was in the, in the thick of that. And then 10 years ago, a opportunity opened up to become a seminary pr professor teaching pastoral theology. And uh, a lot of my motivation for making that shift, I did enjoy for the most part pastoral work, but the shift really came from looking to have a little more flexibility in my schedule for various other interests I have, including writing. Uh, but in the last few years, so coming to the ministry, my wife and I do, or it really is a kind of a side hustle for me anyhow. We call it New Story Community. It's second stage recovery for Indigenous women. And so the women come to us from all across Canada and have usually been in a, a treatment program several times, and that hasn't taken hold. And what we do is uh, we get them on the back end of a, another treatment program so they come clean or dry. And then we take seven months to help them rebuild their lives. And uh, it's, it's pretty amazing, it's small scale, five women. And my wife really is, is, is the kind of magic glue or sauce or whatever the word is for that. And I, I kind of, I'm the woodman, like I have a whole other identity. I, I basically cut and, and chop and haul and stack, sometimes burn firewood. Isn't that your favorite calling? Not oh, author, I love it. Not professor, not church leader, just woodman. Woodman, <laughs> the woodman, the woodman cometh. It actually is uh, lovely. It's incredible to you know get under this island for a couple of weeks and 
and I just put on grubby clothes and I have wood chips all over me all, all the day long. Yeah, it's amazing. And you and I go way back to the days yeah. of your local church work where uh, your church in Duncan, BC was a summit site host. And so we would find ourselves right. at events and kickoffs and, and whatnot and uh, became kind of kindred spirits, I think, especially along kind of these these different ways of thinking about the church and especially the the missional emphases and being for the kind of people that that Jesus was most for. And I know that personally, anyways, I've always really appreciated that about you. Yeah, me too with you, Jeff. I mean, I have very fond memories of uh, the in-between times of the big conferences and, you know, heading down to the Navy Pier or whatever in Chicago. And yeah, these these conversations that flowed into all sorts of areas of mutual interest that was stimulated by these sort of big events, but really partly because you and I are Canadians and, and often felt that maybe the American scene didn't entirely understand this, the context in which we we're working. And so it was very heartening to have a, a fellow Canadian pastor that we could, you know, get into the deep weeds of that stuff together. Hmm. Well, listen, uh, I want to dive into a, f- a few different subjects today. Uh, the first just being a, a bit of your local church background. You're living in the world now, like you said, a little more flexible between academics and woodmen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but there, there was a day where you uh, lived a little closer to the, the front lines of local church ministry. Do you want to talk about your your time and your experience in, in Duncan and just you know what you... Yeah what you enjoyed in that era as a lead pastor. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, 24 years in total in pastoral ministry, and 18 of those were Duncan and Vancouver Island. And that's where you and I really became friends and, and uh, started kind of sharing uh, resources together, etc. Duncan was formative for me in many, many ways, but not the least is I realized maybe two, three years into it. First of all, I, I woke to the incredible opportunity, but also uh, scandal of the church's relationship with First Nations people. And what I'm doing now with alongside my wife is really a direct outflow of what started to happen in Duncan those many years ago, where a, a very significant, prominent, and visible Indigenous community in that town and virtually no church was doing anything other than sort of holding opinions, which they had um, were indeed not entitled to because nobody had done any significant study or research of that community. And so we had opinions about them, but but no real friendship and relationship with them. And so God started to really wreck me about that. And that was birthed in my time in Duncan. Alongside of that, Jeff, came the realization, especially as we ventured into that, once you start, I think, going on, uh, you know, a kind of book of acts level of missy, you know, missions, it's a mess. It's a mess at every level. It 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 really stirs up the church community in ways that disrupts their comfort, um, reveals the not too beneath, you know, too far beneath the surface prejudice. Um, Everybody's ecclesiology, in a sense, and missiology comes up, pops up to the surface. 
when you sort of go on a dangerous or, or difficult mission. And these, so that was a discovery. I, I thought everybody would be gung ho about it and, and they weren't. <laughs> and the second thing is how much kind of perseverance and sheer dogged stubbornness and pluck it takes to actually lead a church and keep up the, uh, keep up the pressure to actually continually engage and go deeper and deeper into that kind of work. And so some of my later books, like Your Church is Too Safe, emerged really out of thinking through a theology of risk and a theology of mission. And and a lot of it's, you know, self-therapy, just having to uh, coach and coax myself to be brave when honestly I just wanted to fold up the, the tent and go home. You know, it's amazing as you're as you're sharing, I'm sure particularly for Southridge members listening, they're already catching a glimpse of what's made us such kindred spirits in mm. the total redefining of what church is by the way you're describing. Yeah. You know, you're referring to it as ecclesiology, missiology. You know, really it's 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 redefining what church is from some event and some you know, a, assembly of people for an hour or so to actually embodying and incarnating Jesus in your community and ultimately being for the kind of people he's most for through that messy life on life friendship. Yeah. I mean, to go from one to the other is a complete overhaul, not just of the mind, but of the soul. Yeah. And it, it felt like back in the day when we would kind of yeah. share about our experiences that, that you were living into that messiness and that you were yeah. on that path as well. And yeah. it, it, I've just so appreciated that. Thanks. And thank you, by the way, I, I, I one of the diseases I've picked up in the last 10 years being in the academic world is I, I use big words like ecclesiology and missiology that actually don't translate probably for a lot of your listeners, they would, but, but just people in the pews, it generally doesn't. And so thanks for putting that in the, in good pastoral language. Yeah, I, I mean, that really is what it is, is I think church leaders have to find the courage, the stamina, the community that will will egg them, you know, encourage them on to reimagine what the church is. And it's not, it's not a novel imagining. It's really going back to original documents. It's going back to the community Jesus gathered. It's going back to the book of Acts community and the kind of turning the world on its head thing that was happening there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've been recently reading a great book on the apostle Paul and so beautiful how it lays out how this man, you know, went from somebody who is going to use all the forces of law uh, that he could pull down, you know, he's going to Jerusalem to get legal writs to go, do his nasty business of arresting Christians. And after he becomes a Christian, he's so is, is so turned around by the idea that the, this Messiah is a crucified savior risen. Yes, but crucified unimaginable to him before that he will not resort to any of the typical strategies or, or means of power to try to, move forward his his mission he's going to embrace the the mess and the suffering that's involved in it and i think that uh i don't know i honestly don't know if there's any way else to lead a church 
Yeah, well, that uh, that certainly has been a, a perspective of understanding and empathy that I've I've appreciated in you. That interestingly enough, I, from my experience, kind of defined why you made the the shift to Ambrose to to academic work. I remember you talking about you know being a a professor of pastoral studies <laughs> and essentially helping people who were developing theological book smarts you know, before they entered the real world of the trenches of local church work, kind of having to pass through you and have their theories tested in kind of a, a real life framework. Talk about how that's been yeah. and just your, your experience of providing that perspective to students who are aspiring pastors and church planters. Yeah, I think it's an, I think it's the necessary work I bring. I, I work with some pure academics, and they're brilliant, and I learn a lot from them. And, and to be honest, sometimes they don't even understand what they're saying. They're so you know they they know so much, and they uh, can speak at a level beyond my comprehension. But but I think what I the necessary thing I bring is exactly what you just described that. I, 24 years of actual on the ground, boots on the ground ministry, and you can, or I can, I can sense a, an idea that is maybe sounds elegant in a theoretical way, but is, is going to absolutely explode. It's going to just sort of fall apart the minute you actually, you know, try to put it into play. And so I, uh, I'm always kind of like, just to say, so at the level of even preaching, um, I'm listening to them, the students, and you know that's why I'm a bit embarrassed to use words like ecclesiology and missiology, which I would I would jump all over a preaching student if they said that, or I would simply ask, who are you imagining you're preaching to? Uh, because the 12 year old boy sitting there doesn't give a rip about that, doesn't have a probably a clue what you're saying, and even if he did, he would be he would be completely have lost him. He's glazed over at that point. And so I really push them to think about if you have to, you know, aim at anybody, aim for that, that 12 year old boy who's super restless and just wants to be with his friends or on his device or whatnot, or that woman who walked in, who doesn't know what she's looking for. It, you just, hopes for something more than she has in her life right now, but she feels really alienated in virtually every place and space she's in. And so I'm really getting my students to think through the actual real world dynamics of any, any ministry they're doing. Uh, one of the things that has come out of our, my wife and my indigenous work, we, we often apply it in academic setting and we call it the NIO test. And NIO is this amazing First Nations woman that we know who's overcome unbelievable <laughs> trauma and barriers in her life. And she's, she's one of the funniest and most direct people we've ever met. And she'll just hear some sort of gobbledygook that somebody's saying, and she'll say, well, that's not going to work here. And she means on the reserve. So we, we actually subject our ideas to the NIO test. <laughs> we just try to sort of channel NIO, is that going to work here? And I, I think that that's partly, you know, uh, the, the gift I bring. Now, after 10 years of being in the a academia or in the academic world, some of that field experience has certainly 
you know, it's gone away, it's faded. That's uh, not the reason my wife and I started this ministry news story community a couple of years ago, but it certainly doesn't hurt that we're back in a very frontline, boots on the ground, deeply personal. Uh, if you don't show up, it, it's a kind of almost could be literally a life and death thing for people. And that's reinvigorated sort of my, um, both my sense of what actually happens on the ground, but also my ability to apply the NIO test to things. And in that world, the kind of the academic world and with emerging gen, you know, you've been into it now for, for a decade or so, you know, to what degree, and obviously this is Canadianized and even customized in, in our, our world here in Canada, to what degree do you feel like students are these days ready for the challenges and the dynamics of local church ministry compared to what kind of support are you seeing them need in order to make the yeah. leap from theoretical to practical? So good. So I, my teaching is at the, uh, at the seminary level, so it's more mature students often in their 30s plus. So in some ways... Uh, they've already had a fairly deep and wide experience in some vocation, some either pastoral or, you know, they've been in some other area of service. I, one of my key students is a, a lawyer from Zambia, and he's in his 40s, and he's brilliant. So in, in a lot of ways, you know, what we might be thinking in terms of the, the uh unpreparedness of a student. I think that still applies at the graduate level that so many people coming out of there, they have some very basic skills and orientation, but they need a lot more. Where in my world, increasingly, we're seeing mid-career uh, moves into, the, into seminary. So again, lots of these students at 30s, 40s, even sometime beyond, thinking, uh, you know, I've worked in oil and gas for 30 years and I'm ready to get a seminary education. Well, those people, um, they don't, they already know how to function really well in a context outside of the church. A lot of it would be just helping them to sort of, how do you fit all that experience and knowledge and, and adjust your pay scale <laughs> to work within a church community. Having said that, Jeff, I, I think that, uh, that there's still any student, coming out of seminary, even if they have that, that life experience and that maturity, um, they really still need people like you on the ground who have been doing this for a long, long time. They kind of help them navigate in that first year, year and a half the world. And one of the things that I think that a student coming out of seminary needs is to translate back all of this book learning and book smarts, you called it, you know, head knowledge back into real life circumstances. And so uh, it's inevitable, it's a hazard of seminary training that you pick up a certain vocabulary, a certain way of thinking about things. I can, for instance, I was graduated from Regent. I can tell a Regent grad like at 50 yards because there's certain ways Regent grads talk that it marks them. And I think some of it isn't really helpful for the local scene. And so I, I think that one of the things that, that once they come out of seminary, that, that 
someone like you has to help them is kind of lose some of that some of that vibe that they that maybe really worked well within the context of the seminary but it's not going to translate well into a mill worker or uh, somebody works at one of the steel plants near you. Hmm. One of the questions I'm interested in for today, knowing that you're now in your sixties and I just recently entered my fifties. Okay. Uh, we're not, we're not spring chicken anymore. No. Um, I, I guess looking at this emerging gen and you said you're even with grad students, some of them are in their forties. What are they teaching you these days? <laughs> So much. Well, what we're seeing an absolute explosive, like like in ways that are stunning us, explosive growth is in international students. Hmm. And uh, like I, I, I had a preaching class last semester, 21 students, I think four or five were Caucasian from Canada. And the rest were international students from all over from Central America, South America, Asia, uh, parts of Asia, parts of Africa. And what I'm beginning to realize is the richness of their experience of the church, their experience of their own culture. Uh, they're, they're often uh, not just two languages, multilingual. They'll often speak, speak a tribal language, a sort of a lingua franca of the area they come from, uh, often superb English speakers and writers or incredibly fast learners. And then they often will have another language. They'll speak German or French. So in a lot lot of ways, they're just super, super bright. But they have a worldview that really I've become a lot more of a student of. And for instance, I was doing a thing in a class I'm teaching this semester on worship. And I have, I think, four or five African students from all over, East and West Africa mostly, so from Ghana to Kenya. And uh, and I got talking about the Psalms and I talked talk about the imprecatory Psalms or, you know, the uh, kill my, kill my, you know, here's my hit list, God, and here's my advice to you and how you should, you know, take out my enemy. <laughs> and I was talking about these Psalms and the Canadian Caucasian students were getting profoundly uncomfortable with the conversation as the African students got more and more excited. And so I turned to Enoch, who's from Ghana, and I said, Enoch, what's going on here? They're just buzzing around each other. And I said, what's going on there? And he says, I didn't think I'd ever hear uh, this talked about in a Western seminary, but this is how Africans pray. We, we have real enemies and we actually pray psalm-like prayers about what we want God to do. And so the conversation went in a whole new direction. And it was, I think, not just edifying and educational for me, but for the rest of the community. Because what we do is we metaphorize those texts and we talk about the enemy of whatever, our psychological kind of battles or something, right? <laughs> Um, or we we have this sort of vague sense of the you know this this these forces out there that are opposed to us, and they're talking about people, politicians, et cetera, that actually they started talking about voodoo and the the deep, especially in Western Africa, the, the continual deep presence of voodoo, and so it was just fascinating <laughs> to sit in on this and be part of this, and. Um, in realizing that, you know, more and more we're living in these deeply multicultural spaces, like I think where you are in St. Catharines, my goodness, 
you know, go back 20 years to, and, and then, you know, fast forward to now and the, the diversity of people in your community, any community in Canada. And so I, I think in terms of how even you, a person like you navigates that, um, to sit as a humble learner of these international, these people coming from all over the world and to really sort of actually say, well, maybe what God's doing here is he's, he's providing church leaders and churches themselves with an opportunity to not just talk multiculturalism, but somehow actually embody it in really profound ways. Yeah, not just talk diversity. Yeah. Not just talk unity and diversity, but figure out how to how that's actually supposed to happen. I love that. Hey, in light of that, you know, both with your exposure to a younger generation, but also, uh, as you mentioned, exposure just to, to, to multicultural backgrounds and way broader perspectives than our, our Canadian or even our Western world. Um, for where Mark Buchanan sits today, lots of boots on the ground experience, academic experience, now real world experience, you know, up close with Indigenous folks. Where's the church in Canada headed? How would you answer that question? Well, first of all, I'm super hopeful. And, and, and I think I'm more hopeful for having done 10 years in a seminary than I maybe was when I left the pastorate. And I'm hopeful because I love this generation coming up. I love them. And they've got uh, they're, they're unbelievably gifted. And that might be a function of the internet and all the resources that they're back and call. But um, I really see a heart for God in this generation that is quite breathtaking and very inspiring and often convicting. Uh, at the same time, I think that, you know, the, the church right now is, um, I think that we're at the moment where we, we really have to start to figure out what it looks like to embrace being a, a cruciform community. And what I mean by that, again, is sounding like an academic, but I don't think we're going to move forward the kingdom of God using the tools of, of cultural and political power. I don't think the church has ever done that. Uh, and whenever they've been able to access cultural and political power, they've become weak wherever they have done that. So you can go to places in the world where they have very little, if none, cultural and political power, and the church tends to be strong. And certainly the church pre-Constantine was. And I really think that um, the, the faster, I'm not saying we somehow throw off, uh, you know, all vestiges that we still have of cultural political power. I just think we're deluded to the extent that we think that those ever are going to really move forward the kingdom of God. I think actually what we do every time we reach for those is we do that at the expense of divine power. And I'm quite, I'm, I'm getting kind of fundamentalist about this actually in my own thinking. I think that the, the sooner, like people lament whatever the loss of the influence of the church and Canadian culture. And I think I don't lament it. I mean, the, the, the loss of influence is an influence that we never bore with, I think, um, with, a, with a kingdom heart and a kingdom mindedness. I don't think it was bearing a, the kind of fruit that Jesus wants. And I'm being really 
candid and really harsh at this point. But I really think uh, the more we have to sort of really turn to God and completely rely on God for God to do what only God can do, the more we're going to actually see the church recover its, its, its power, its joy, its effectiveness, its deep community, et cetera. And I would ask then more specifically, especially for leaders listening, Mark, what, what, what kind of local church leadership DSC is going to be required to kind of take advantage of the way that God's spirit is moving. Like when I think about your, your own calling, you know, weekend service planning <laughs> two decades ago and life on life with five right. women in friendship yeah. together with your wife being a yeah. woodsman uh, is a very different way of ushering in the reality of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So how's a leader going to need to shift gears in the next 10 or 20 years? Well, I think actually the kingdom is going to happen in, in, in the small. So I'm not saying that, you know, I know the church that that you pastor Jeff is a, is a large and thriving thing. So I'm not saying sabotage that, but you know, already because, and I know this because of our long history together, that the real work happens at a very small scale. So I think this, this, uh, the leader of today basically has to take almost as their motto, uh, Jesus has entrusted me, or I have been faithful with, with many things. Now he's going to entrust me with a few. (laughs) And I think that for leaders to have that two or three things that are very small, but are very effective. So that would be, again, where my wife have discovered that we, the work we do with five women is unbelievably significant in terms of the kingdom, but it's not, it's not glamorous. It's hard. It, uh, it doesn't scale. We, we would ruin it if we tried to scale it, all of that. So I think, I think that sort of, I'm uh, finishing up a book right now on a little village that in, in the um, French Alps helped, a tiny little village helped 2,500 plus Jewish refugees during World War II. And that's the principle. Like it's this person in front of you that you actually risk your life on behalf of. The other thing I would say, there's two things that I think that are really the marks of the leader for now. One of them is a profound humility. And, and that would be exercised in numerous directions, but even what we talked about a moment ago, this, this uh, learning from, uh, every people, people at every socioeconomic bracket, people from First Nations communities, people from Ghana, whatever. I think this humble attentiveness to what God has brought them into your life, that it's not just so you're going to help or rescue or teach them, but they're going to do that for you as well. So that deep humility. And the other is I, I more than ever think we got to get brave. So coming back to some of the things I discovered my years in Duncan, that if I am not courageous and uh, choosing courage as a way forward, I will give way to my fear, my cowardice, my laziness, whatever. So I, I do think that the two biggest things for leaders to cultivate right now are that is that humility and that courage. Hmm. Uh, Mark, I could keep going for another hour, so we got to wrap things up. So I, I appreciate you so much being here. I, I guess 
as you're thinking about our audience and members of our church that you've known for a long time and other leaders who track with us from across the country, uh, any final word, encouragement, or challenge to us on just growing into and becoming these Christ-centered, spirit-oozing, kingdom of God ushering agents uh, across our country for the future. Absolutely. I, I, um, my main discipline and in prayer right now is seeking the face of God in the, uh, the church fathers. That was probably, um, some, you know, scholars of church fathers says, if you had to sum up what the church fathers were about in a phrase that they sought the face of God, and whatever that means, but the sense of um, I want to see God, because I think that's where both the humility and the courage are going to come from, this constant renewal, continual renewal in the things you just described, the Christ-centeredness, the spirit oozing, the kingdom bursting forth from me. So I would say to uh, all, all listeners and certainly those leaders, uh, root, you know, s- soak in uh, steep in uh, a life where you're seeking the face of God. Well, Mark, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate you very much. Looking forward to the next time we can hang out. Me too. Thanks, Jeff. And uh, to all of you uh, tracking with us again this week, thanks so much for being here. We'll see you in about seven days' time as we continue finding our way together. Take care, everybody. Thank you.